think that means we're live. All right. Welcome back to the Framework Project. Saying that our next guest has an impressive resume would be an absolute understatement. And uh, amongst his many achievements, he served as the Associate Dean at the Faculty of Law at the University of Alberta. He then ascended rapidly through the, the judicial ranks, having sat for the Court of Queen's Bench of Alberta, the Court of Appeal of Alberta, before finally being appointed to sit on the Supreme Court of Canada, where he served as a puny justice since 2015. Our next guest is the Honorable Justice Russell Brown. Justice Brown, thank you so much for joining us today. Good afternoon. So I think uh, for our listeners who aren't familiar with with legal terminology or just anything in the legal realm, uh, our guest right now is currently sits on the bench of the highest court in the land. And I think we didn't do your introduction enough justice. So you wouldn't mind giving us an introduction to your background. And just for those listening, what even is the Supreme Court in general? Because I, to be honest, if I wasn't in law school, I don't think I would appreciate the, the magnitude of what that is. So why don't we start with that first? Um, the Supreme Court is, is, is the apex court in Canada. It hears all manner of appeals from all manners of courts of appeal. So from the provincial courts of appeal, from the federal court of appeal, areas of their jurisdiction include things like aeronautics, maritime, and, and, and claims against the federal crown. Uh, the court martial court of appeal. So we hear military cases as well. Um, so constitutional, criminal, family, commercial, everything, private law, public law. We hear all those cases and and dispose of them. Uh, there are nine of us uh, that sit on the court. Uh, at least three must be from Quebec by tradition, convention. I won't get too specific because someday I may have to actually decide that. Um, uh, two of us are from the West, uh, one from Atlantic Canada and three from Ontario. And, and I'm from the West. I, I was... Um, raised in, in a very small rural community in Northern British Columbia, uh, did undergraduate studies in history and political science at UBC, um, did some other things, went to law school uh, and practiced law in Vancouver, Victoria. And then uh, for about a, 10 years, then I was a law professor and also practiced law, did appellate work and that kind of thing uh, at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. Um, was appointed to the Queen's Bench, which is the federal trial court in, in uh, Alberta. So the equivalent, for example, of the Ontario Superior Court of Justice. And, um, and then uh, after a short time, 13 months on that court, I went to the Court of Appeal. And then after about a year and a half on that court, I uh, was appointed here. So to those listening, or I guess our colleagues in law who have their sights set on working kind of from the judicial branch, how does one exactly, all we've really been taught is that it's a PMO appointment, so to speak, to get to the Supreme Court. Let's say somebody wanted to reach the plateau that you're at or the, in the career path that you're in. How does one get to that level of judicial activism? That's a good question. I mean, it was something I never aspired to. I more, I think I more or less kind of stumbled into it, but um... Uh, yeah, it is, it is an appointment by um, effectively the prime minister, by the governor and council. And, um, and, and the prime minister, uh, the only real requirement is that the, the um, person be a Canadian citizen and have practiced law for 10 years. And if it's a, a Quebec appointment, it must be a member of the Quebec bar, which conclude judges from the Quebec courts as well. Um, but beyond that, the prime minister can appoint whomever uh, and by whatever process he or she 
um, chooses. And, and so the current prime minister, um, I was appointed by the previous prime minister, Prime Minister Harper, but the current prime minister has an application process. So I, I didn't apply, uh, but if you now want to be on the Supreme Court, you apply. And there's a committee and, 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 and they provide the prime minister with a shortlist and the prime minister will appoint from that shortlist is what I understand the current process is. But, um, you know, prime minister could, could, could jettison all that tomorrow and, and appoint by whatever process prime minister Trudeau wants. It is the prime minister's appointment ultimately. That's a, that's a really cool story. And, you know, Justice Brown, I was looking at, at, at you know, your history and, um, you know, I alluded to it in the introduction, how rapidly you ascended through those ranks and, you know, <laughs> adapting to any job would be difficult, but, you know, three or so years into your, your tenure as a judge and you're already on the Supreme Court, what was that transition like and adapting to your new role? Um, it was... The, the, so the transition to, to the Supreme Court, you mean, um, it was frankly quite challenging. Um, not so much the work, although the work comes with its own challenges because you sit as nine, all of you together, almost all the time. And whereas on the, on the Court of Appeal, if there was um, you know, a colleague with whom you disagreed a lot on, on issues that came up a lot, well, you'd only sit together every few months, so you wouldn't have that kind of tension uh, operating all the time but we we have we have those issues coming here and 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 being the subject of disputes here all the time and I, I don't shy away from disputes but let's face it it's 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 an easier day uh, when you haven't had a dispute than the, than when you have um, so there's that aspect of it but but for me um, um, the move to eastern Canada was, very difficult. Um, I, I grappled, and I knew this would be the case, but I didn't quite understand the severity of it. I grappled with serious homesickness uh, for, and for the first three, three and a half years, it's almost six years now, it was really quite serious. It wasn't debilitating in the sense that I couldn't do my job, but it was, um, it was serious all the same. I mean, I woke up every morning um, upset that I was living here and, and, and almost several times um, I uh, got to the point where I was going to ask the Minister of Justice to to replace me with, you know, to fill the current, the next vacancy on the Alberta Court of Appeal uh, with me. And even now it still remains, you know, a source of regret and a source of sadness that um, uh, the life that I left behind and the place that I left behind, I, I, I've come to realize in my sort of 55 years that, that um, uh, I had developed a real intimacy with the West and with its geography. And I mean, right down to its, its natural history and its topography. And, you know, I, I, could, I could show you the old trails, uh, you know, that the fur traders and the indigenous people use. I could, I could, I could you know, show you where the, the watersheds diverged in the Rockies. Um, um, you know, long time spent in, in real wilderness. Um, um, you know, off the grid, miles further from a trailhead than you could ever get in the Gatineau Hills, um, was a significant and and I didn't really realize until I came out here essential part of my life. And and it was it, spending that time was how um, was a real was a really important aspect of maintaining mental health for me. And so um, and 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 so 
you know, when I came out here, it took me kind of a few years to get to the point where I, you know, kind of grasped, grabbed myself by the shoulders. And actually it was a friend of mine who said, you need to find something out here you love. You're not going to last. And, um, and so a, a large amount of what I do to kind of maintain um, a positive disposition and, and mental well-being is, is directed to overcoming the, the regret and the sadness of, of the loss of that part of my life. Um, and, and to ensuring it doesn't become a burden on the people around me, on my, on my family or my colleagues, um, the, the people who have to spend time with me and have to endure whatever mood I'm in. So. No, absolutely. And you kind of already started diving into my next question. You, you just touched on, um, in depth, you know, what, what poor mental health might look like from, from your perspective. Um, and, you know, for our listeners, you know, we often talk about what, what signs of positive mental health are like for us. Um, and I, I know, I know you touched on it a little bit just now, but maybe you could expand a little bit more on what are some of the things that for you personally, anyways, if you're willing to share, um, are, are indicators that you're in good mental health and, and what are some of the strategies that you've used to, um, to maintain that? I think, I think a real indicator for me, and I can only speak speak for myself is um, am I adhering um, faithfully to a routine? Um, am I, am I, and, and for me, a routine is up early. I'm typically up between four and four 30 in the morning and, and I'm in bed by kind of nine, nine 30 kind of deal. And, and am I, am I sticking to that? Um, and if I'm not, you know, why not? I mean, obviously, you know, you have a, dinner party or we used to have dinner parties and maybe that goes a little bit later you know so it's a one-off but but is it becoming a habit um am i am i am i kind of foregoing exercise during a busy during busy hearing weeks um so 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 for me kind of the the signal is adherence to routine um if i'm if i'm doing well then then that's all good and and if I'm not, and of course it, it kind of feeds on itself, it may be a sign that something is is wrong, and also it makes it worse, uh, because because routine, you know, routine is there for a reason. It helps you um, navigate a a busy life and and a sometimes quite onerous set of responsibilities. Um, I mean, my routine allows for um, the reality that there are. Um, many times in this role that I just have to work on reasonably hard. And that's, that's kind of all there is to it. Um, and, and, and there's an easy way not to have to do that anymore. It's just quit. Um, but, but if you're going to do the job, it's just, look, it's just the way it is. So the routine helps me do that. And it, it makes sure I get enough sleep and, and that I get the exercise, um, that I need. Um, so I think, um, you know, and, and and that leads to another point is 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 how do I maintain it? Um, I strenuous exercise, uh, regular strenuous exercise um, for me almost every day, at least six days a week, um, is is really quite essential. So uh, when the pools are open, um, I swim a mile uh, every morning. I'm in from kind of 6 a.m. to 6 45 
and I get out hiking as much as possible. And that's typically, you know, at least three or four hours um, a, a week uh, on a weekend, sometimes with one of my colleagues, Justice Rowe. Uh, is a is a faithful hiker as well. So, I'm sure the uh, Ottawa winters don't necessarily uh, help with having to wake up at 4:30 for your routine. I just experienced my first Ottawa winter and how dark that was. That was brutal. So, well, I, you remember I came from Edmonton. So, so okay. So this is really okay. This is on easy mode. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, this is. I, well, they, I mean, Ottawa winters are really something different from from Edmonton. There's a lot more snow. Right. Yeah. A lot more kind of, of dark days, but um, um, for outdoor recreation in the winter, it's actually really tough to beat Ottawa. I think um, uh, whatever your thing is, skiing, cross country, the cross country skiing here is just like it's ubiquitous. You can just, I, I think it'd be very hard to find a place in Ottawa that is not, a, 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 you know, does yeah, not have yeah. easy access to cross country ski trails, yeah. um, snowshoeing and, and just winter hiking. Um, I enjoy all those things and, and, and Ottawa is good. And, and when we're allowed to travel to the Gatineau Hills, it's quite accessible. So to follow up on, on what Jordan's question was, Justice Brown, and apologies for the first name slipped earlier. I was reading your Zoom name. Um, <laughs> what, um, in regards to like kind of, we talked about you specifically with mental health and how you tackle um, or what you uphold as essential to maintain your mental health kind of drawing back that skill a bit, looking at the legal profession as a whole. And for somebody who's been invested in this profession for the better majority of your life, how do you think the overall mental health sphere is for people in this profession compared to, let's say, uh, medicine or a high caliber job on Bay Street, for example, whether that's corporate or finance, et cetera. And particularly, I want to ask too your involvement with corporate law or insurance law, more of those those high octane fields of law. How does how have you seen mental health as a, a value in this profession uh, be upheld? Um, you know it's hit and miss. It it it, it depends on the culture of of a workplace, um, uh, which. Um, uh, depends on the the people in charge, and and but it's also highly dependent on the on the kind of work that you do. There, you know, there are certain. I mean, you talk about medicine and and, and you know business. Um, you know, my father had a hardware store. It was a small little business, um, but I can tell you, it was very high stress for him. He had to meet a payroll. He, you know, the the house that he had built himself was security for the loans to keep the business going to the reset during the recessions in the late seventies and early eighties in British Columbia. Um, that was high stress. Um, talk to someone in the healthcare field about how the last 14 months have been for them. Um, it's high stress. And there are certain fields in law that are just the same way. There are certain areas of undertaking where to be really, really excellent at, you have to work really, really hard in high stressful environments. Um, you know, and not all areas of law are like that, right? I mean, you know, being a criminal defense lawyer is a much more high stress environment than, for example, being a, a, a drafts person in a legislative shop. And that doesn't mean that those people do not work hard and, 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 they, and they're not skilled, but it's not the same environment, right? They're not having to, you know, endure a judge barking at them in every morning in arraignment court or whatever it is. Um, uh, you know, same thing for trial work, same thing for appellate work. Um, and, and I mean, transactional work as well. I mean, there's, there's a lot hanging on the care that you take 
um, in in your job. So, um, look, it, it's it's high stress, and you have to manage that in some way. And I've talked to you about how I manage uh, high stress: is, is 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 routine and exercise, and I'll add a few other things. I, I I'm now much better than I used to be at talking to people about these things and being quite candid about it, and and trying to kind of overcome um you know the decades of acculturation that this is that this is a weakness um you have to kind of get over that and i you know frankly i i i still kind of struggle with with that acculturation as well um but i think you know what i would tell someone in your circumstances is you know law is um it's a ticket to a wide range of possible careers. And, and my career is a testament to that variety, right? I was a trial lawyer, I was a professor, I was an appellate lawyer, I, you know, and then a judge, and then a trial judge, and then an appellate judge, which are two different, completely different jobs. So I did lots of neat stuff in the law. And, and um, I think a very helpful exercise um, is, every couple of years, and particularly in your first few years of practice, take stock, just actually deliberate um, in a very disciplined way. Am I happy? And, and, and one way to kind of gauge that is, am I spending my Sunday evenings dreading Monday morning? Or am I spending my Sunday evenings kind of looking forward to Monday morning? Um, and, and, and I think the reason that you want to do that is um, you want to be as good as you can at your job. And to be a really excellent lawyer, you just have to work unreasonably hard sometimes. And it must be torture to work unreasonably hard at things that make you unhappy. Whereas if you kind of keep other aspects in your life in balance, working unreasonably hard at something you love can actually be, be a joyful thing, um, as long as you do it in a healthy way. <clears throat> So take stock and, uh, you know, if you can avoid it, don't get locked into the big mortgage. Don't let get locked into the big car loan um, until you're quite satisfied that you are where you belong. And, and so that you maintain flexibility and that you don't feel trapped. You know, there's a lot of lawyers who are unhappy. There's a lot of lawyers who, uh, and, and, and that, that, I mean, that develops, that manifests itself in all kinds of ways, usually something involving alcohol. But there's a lot of lawyers that have taken care to ensure that they have landed somewhere that really works for them and have made adjustments uh, where necessary. And um, that's the kind of lawyer you want to be. You want to be the lawyer who's happy because the happy lawyer is the contributing lawyer who's doing a good job for uh, her employer or his client. Um, so, so flexible, be adaptable. Um, don't get locked in. I think that's the sound bit of the episode. That was uh, really, really insightful. Yeah, just incredibly insightful, and um, and I really, I really like the perspective and and keeping in perspective that every profession has their strains and and um, their own challenges, but. On that point of, you know, lawyers potentially like turning to alcohol, other substance abuse from the outside, that's, that's a, 
that's a perception that I feel like a lot of people have about the profession and it is associated with some of those bad, bad quote unquote coping mechanisms. Um, um, when you aren't happy, I, I, we ask this to, to every other, you know, person in the legal field when they come on the podcast, but what, how do you think the conversation around mental health has evolved um, over the last, you know, over the course of your career within the legal profession? I know it's been a while since you've actually practiced, but even, you know, in the judiciary and, 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 um, and elsewhere in academia, how do you think it's, how do you think that conversation has progressed? I think, well, it's been uneven, but it, but it has been an uneven progression. So, so what do I mean by that? I think there are kind of, you know, I keep using the word deliberative, but I think that's exactly, you have to kind of reflect on these things in order to, to, to make meaningful advances. Um, I think um, organizations like the CIAJ, uh, CVA, um, the NJI, the National Judicial Institute, is paying in a very disciplined way much more attention to this, and 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 so that is that is in that is actually um, useful. I think the conversation has in some inchoate way become a more comfortable conversation. Um, but it's been sort of particular episodes that have moved it along. Um, you know, on our court, frankly, it was, it was uh, the, the, um, the departure of Justice Gascon that I think uh, moved, moved forward uh, discussions. And I think also looking back to uh, Justice Ledane, and there have been other episodes, including one I'm personally aware of, 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 of just a, a, a judge on this court having enormous difficulty. And, and you can see why um, you're, 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 you know, you're compelled to move away from home unless you're from Ottawa, uh, sometimes quite far away from home, away from your supports, sometimes away from your family. Um, so, so, so there's more kind of open discussion and I think actually I've noticed, um, without it being too intrusive, but judges are keeping an eye on their colleagues in that in that way that that may, they may not have before. They may have thought, well, that's a private thing; it's none of my business. Uh, but I think people are prepared, much as you sort of ask, "Hey, I you know I noticed you broke your arm last month. How's the arm feeling?" I think now there's there's kind of a more interpersonal, open discussion about just how are you doing. Um, you know, it doesn't happen in a court meeting in front of nine people, but I think on one on one you might see more. There might be more of that happening. Um, you know, we're 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 inherently quite a conservative profession. I don't mean that in a political sense. We we you know we're incremental. Um, until episodes happen that kind of move things along. And we've had a few in our history now. And uh, I, I think we are, because of that, um, much further ahead than we were, even when I just, when I joined the judiciary in Alberta in 2013. Much, much, much more. On, on that note, 
with I like how you had mentioned the significance of, of watching mental health in this profession evolve very temporally or, or through like episodically, so to speak. And like Jordan and I, why we started this podcast was to, from a student level, before we even get into the profession, try to cultivate an environment just amongst our colleagues and our peers. We're like having that peer-to-peer vulnerability and interpersonal dialogue about this stuff wasn't something that was stigmatized or that you should be ashamed of bringing up. Um, what are your opinions on kind of like in this decade, in this age, what could law schools or at least the bodies or groups that are training the next generation of lawyers, what could those institutions do to foster a better environment for mental health so that our generation of lawyers doesn't necessarily have to experience things in episodes. It's just a more progressive involvement towards a better environment. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a bit, I'm a bit nervous about making recommendations because I don't know what they're doing now. And, uh, and I, it's, it's, it's not a dodge. I just don't want to be presumptuous about that. Um, I think, uh, I mean, let's put it this way. If I were the Dean of a law school, um, I would take my cues from the students um, as as to what as to what they need. Um, and if I were the managing partner of a firm, I would take my cues from my colleagues and from my associates. Um, I mean, if I'm a managing partner, I want my colleagues to be productive. And to be productive, you have to be happy. If I'm the dean of a law school, I want my students to succeed. To succeed, you have to be happy. So I would take my cues from them. And so, as I say, I'm, I, it, um, it, it's, it's probably not for me sitting up here on Mount Olympus to, uh, to give directions. I think this is a bottom-up uh, consultation. We, we couldn't agree more. We've, we've had those discussions, um, you know, with professors. And I think, I think as, you know, the University of Ottawa, for example, as they're selecting their new dean, um, in, in the, in the near future here, I think that's going to be one of the things that, um, that is going to end up being hopefully a deciding factor, um, in terms of like what, what the plan is for mental health. I know we've had a little bit of a mental health crisis on campus, um, you know, the last, the last two, three years and the pandemic definitely hasn't helped things. So it's good to hear, um, you know, to hear that now, do you have, what kind of, you know, that's from the, you know, the student's perspective, but in terms of, you know, resources, what's available to you as a judge? I'm just as a personal curiosity, what kind of resources are available to like somebody's a member of the judiciary um, for mental health? If I, if I can ask, sorry, if I'm being too, too intrusive. The counseling services made available to us under our health coverage. Um, and um and uh, so, so if, if judges need assistance, um, they, they have access to it. Um, I, I, so, so a judge who knows that they need help can get the help. The problem is always the judge that, that doesn't know that, that he or she needs help. And, and, and that's where those one-on-one conversations with colleagues, I think, are quite important. Um, uh, but, but no, uh, and, and the same thing, by the way, for, for law faculties uh, and, and I, I, I hope for students is that uh, there are these services made available. We have very good services uh, made available to us um, uh, effectively on demand. What, just so I guess Mount Olympus isn't lonely if you don't want it to be. Like you can let other professionals into your sphere to help you out, I guess. 
Yeah, you know, one of the challenges of, of, of the judicial life is one of the necessities of judicial life. There's a certain degree of isolation, right? Um, you, you uh, I mean, in, while I was still in Alberta, I could, I could maintain my friendships uh, from outside the judiciary easily enough, but there, there was a, nonetheless a certain, um, I don't want to say formality, but there were certain places that you couldn't go that maybe you used to be able to go. Um, and of course, now we're, we're all out here and we're all from away. And, and for that reason, I think the one-on-one -on -one with your colleagues becomes much more important. Um, and, and the friendships that you make on the court and, and um, the candor uh, that you um, feel that you can express and you feel you can count on from your colleagues becomes vital. If I may, I want to go back to a remark you made about the how essential it is for lawyers every few years to do that intentional self-reflection and deliberation on their their current level of happiness and, and content with their career. Um, if I may ask in this setting, are you Justice Brown as the Supreme Court judge? Have you deliberated? Are you happy with where you are right now? <laughs> Um, well, that's a constant uh, evaluation that I'm undertaking. Look, I miss home. Uh, I, I think anyone who knows me knows that I miss home desperately. And uh, I try to get home as, as often as I can. That's been obviously not, not, uh, not very often in the last 15 months. Uh, but I feel that the work I'm doing is important. I enjoy the work. The work um, is endlessly interesting. There's no dog files, to put it mildly. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll continue evaluating. Um, it'll, it'll depend on, on, on some things that are beyond my control. It'll depend, for example, um, on my spouse and, and what she would like to do. And it will depend on our, on our kids, uh, what they're doing and where they're doing it. And, uh, and, um, you know, it may depend on, on, on things here. The, the, um, you know, the culture of a court can change and, and, and there's a lot of turnover coming in the, in the next few years. And, uh, you know, just, so it's a constant evaluative process. Um, um, I just have a one, I'm going to let Jordan ask our final question for you, but from um, a more like a practical legal question, um, since your time in the court, while we're on the topic of mental health, we, we obviously just finished one else, so we know nothing. Um, we, so like to put it completely honestly, our really only exposure to legal topics that pertain to mental health were through tort cases. So like um, intentional affliction, nervous shock, psychiatric harm, stuff like that. How have you seen up at the highest court of the land from a uh, black letter law perspective, the conversations changing towards more so appreciating the impact mental health has on people's lives. Like, is that culture shifting in a, in a positive way, legally speaking? Legally speaking, it's hard to tell. You know, it, it, it doesn't come up very often in the cases that we see. Uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, certainly um, the Sadati decision. Um, yeah, that's the only one we know. was a, kind of a labor of love for me. Um, I had taught those, as we called them, nervous shock cases in the, at, at, at the University of Alberta. And, and, and I, I was always just shocked by <laughs> sort of how these, you know, Dickensian kind of era, this Dickensian era thinking about, about, um, uh, about mental injury, um, you know, just kind of 
found its way into modern doctrine in the forms of, you know, completely unprincipled distinctions about different kinds of proximities, which made no sense. And, and, and I, I'd never written on it as a, as a scholar, but, but I taught it and I would tell my students prepare to be whisked to the, to the, to the 19th century. Um, so it was a, a kind of a personal um, pleasure to, to, to write for a unanimous court. Um, and, and, you know, so, so there was that. Um, and, and something that was significant about that was, was, was the court said unanimously, you know, tort law doesn't exist to kind of do away with old stereotypes and misconceptions, but it, it should not promote them. And I think you can take that as a generally applicable state of the law where, where judges can within proper judicial methodology um, um, make for the law to cease advancing um, these kinds of groundless and, and frankly harmful stereotypes. Um, I think you can count on them uh, to, to do just that. Uh, but it, it, you know, I'm, I'm, I could be missing some even fairly obvious cases. I'm sorry. There's a lot of cases dancing around in my head at any given time, but uh, I can't think of any other really obvious example of that right now. So uh, I think it's all right. I don't, I don't think Quinn and I remember any of our tort law cases uh, right now either. So that's <laughs> subject. Absolutely. Um, I have one, like last, last question here for you. It's going to be a lot less hard hitting than uh than the previous things I, this has been such a great interview but the one lingering thing in my mind what is it about four in the morning that can compel a man to want to wake up at that time <laughs> um well going to bed early helps um look I, I i've always i've always been an early morning person even like you know in my teens and 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 um and that deal was kind of sealed when I had kids um, uh, because, you know, I'd been a trial lawyer for 10 years by that point. I, so now I'm, I'm, I'm the starting professor. And, um, and so I was working like a banshee kind of every day, you know, publisher Paris sort of thing and, and finishing up a doctorate. And, um, and so the reality was, um, you know, I, I didn't want to work the weekends away while I had these little children. And um, uh, first of all, I would have been robbing myself and robbing them. And I think secondly, I would have been facing a divorce petition. So, so, um, so my thing was work for like four hours until eight o'clock when the kids are up and then you can give them the day and, and, and then do that again the next morning. And you basically put in a full day of work on a weekend day. And it also allowed me um, during the week to kind of free up the evenings um uh you know for the kids and then after the kids went to bed for the company with my spouse and, and so um yeah it just it was a discipline that I developed early and I've I've always stayed with it and I I probably always will I guess one follow final question so we established when we started this podcast we were like okay we're doing mental health we're law students we're trying to reach the apex in our career we we felt like we've done it with with you Justice Brown having you on the show um, are you in touch? Like, do you ever speak or like make any correspondence with your American counterparts at the American Supreme Court level? Like, is that even a possibility for you guys? Is there any interplay of communication? We do have, exchange, we do have exchanges. We haven't had one for a while because we were supposed to have one last year. I think, I think we have them kind of every three or four years. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I, 
I'm actually acquainted with with one of the justices on the on the U.S. Supreme Court, with Justice Gorsuch. Um, but uh, but beyond that, no, we've not had uh, that much contact. Um, I have. Um, I mean, we've we've had exchanges in my time here with the U.K. Supreme Court, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I spoke at a I spoke at a conference uh, hosted by the Singapore Supreme Court last year that you know, allowed me to, to really get to know judges from the New Zealand Supreme Court, the Australian High Court, uh, the, the Hong Kong Final Court of Appeal. And, um, and I know some members of the UK Supreme Court. Uh, but, uh, no, we, you know, you develop personal friendships one-on-one. Um, there are a few institutional opportunities to collaborate. Um, but not often, and we've never done it on mental health so far as I can, so far as I know. So we're going to have to keep trying to get, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas to, uh, answer our emails. But aside from that, uh, uh, we can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Um, and, uh, one final thing. So elephant in the room, I am help. I am the director of the events for next year. So we would love to have you back on at some point to speak to the students, but, uh, we can talk about that later, but, um, that's all from me. Jordan, I don't know if you have anything else to add. No, that's it. Justice Brown, thank you so much for joining us. It was such a great conversation. Well, thank you. And thanks for everything that Elephant in the Room does. My pleasure.